Today we're coming back with another course from Annual Meeting 2018. Today's course, 005IC, Chemotherapy and Immunotherapy Options for Genitourinary Malignancies, a primer for the advanced practice provider. Today's course director was Dr. Costas Lawless from Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. I will now turn you over to Dr. Lawless. As I mentioned, the, the title of the talk, Chemotherapy and Immunotherapy for Urologic Malignancies. It's a primer for the advanced practice provider. My name is Costas Lawless. I'm joined here by Ann Calvaresi and finally uh, Ed Tribalsi. We have no uh, disclosures. Uh, in our talk today, over the next two hours, we're going to introduce the concepts behind systemic and local chemotherapy and immunotherapy. We're going to focus on uh, the following GU malignancies, prostate cancer, urothelial cancer, mostly bladder but a little bit of upper tract, renal cell carcinoma, and testis cancer. We're going to go over the agents, their administration, and how we counsel our patients, the common side effects, how to monitor for them, and how to mitigate them, and finally their relative efficacies. We are going to also focus on the relative role of the urologic oncology APP in managing these patients. As we all know, uh, as far as current treatment modalities of cancer, surgery and radiotherapy are used for solid cancers uh, for curative intent. They are effective when the tumor is not metastasized. Uh, however, when we are dealing with metastatic disease, uh, we're looking at chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and potentially gene therapy. The location, the choice of therapy depends on the location of the tumor, the stage of the tumor, and finally, the performance status of the patient. The goals of chemotherapy, they potentially can be to cure, like what we see with testicular cancer. They can be to control, which prolongs remission has, and decreases rates of relapse, which we see with bladder, prostate, and renal cell carcinoma, and certainly they can be used for a palliative intent to relieve symptoms and improve quality of life, such as the uh, bone resorptive agents that we use for prostate cancer, such as zolidronic acid and denosinab. As far as the types of chemotherapy, certainly you can have a primary chemotherapy where it's used as the main modality of treatment. Uh, it can be a single drug or in combination. Very often we see this with hematologic malignancies, not as much with solid uh, tumors. It can be used in an adjuvant setting where it's combined with radiation or surgery uh, for locally advanced cancer and that's uh, used to uh, clean up after and remove microscopic foci after a primary treatment. And for GU malignancies, that's used in muscle invasive bladder, bladder cancer as well as testis cancer. You can give chemotherapy in a neoadjuvant setting where it's given before surgery or radiotherapy that will help to shrink a large tumor to help facilitate primary or, or the local therapy. We use this for muscle invasive bladder cancer as well as upper tract urothelial carcinoma. And finally, you can give chemotherapy in a concurrent setting, such as simultaneously with radiotherapy, so chemoradiation. In this situation, the chemotherapy acts mainly as a radiosensitizer, enhancing the radiotherapy, and that's uh, used for both muscle invasive bladder cancer as well as advanced prostate cancer. Finally, you can use chemotherapy for systemic disease, for metastatic disease of presentation, which is used for all the tumor types that we're going to go over today. And you can give chemotherapy in a salvage setting after failure of local therapy or another systemic therapy. Uh, and also clinical trials can be uh, considered in this setting. 
and that is also for the, uh, all the tumor types that we're going to be going over today. I, I don't want to induce uh, any type of post-traumatic stress by showing this, uh, but this is the cell cycle. Uh, the only reason that I show it is because various chemotherapy agents will affect the cells at various levels through their cycle. So uh, in red, I've actually marked the, some of the chemotherapy agents that we'll be talking about today. So these are agents that are used in GU malignancies. And as you can see, they're used throughout the actual cell cycle. And when you look at this slide, you can imagine to yourself how combination therapies can be used to actually hit the cell at different levels through the cell cycle and, act, and, and be used in synergy with each other. So when we look at response to chemotherapy, one of the uh, determinants of response is something called growth fraction. So chemotherapy is most effective against high growth fraction tumors. So they're more sensitive to cell-specific drugs. These tumors are leukemia and lymphoma. Also, these uh, uh, chemotherapeutic agents, the cell-specific, uh, the cycle-specific chemotherapeutic agents, will affect uh, normal tissues that have high growth uh, fractions, such as bone marrow, hair follicles, so that lead to hair loss, and finally intestinal, uh, intestinal side effects is what you see with these um, chemotherapeutic agents. Low growth fraction tumors uh, do are not as responsive to the uh, cycle-specific drugs. Uh, so, and we'll get into non-cycle-specific drugs, which are more effective against these agents, uh, these tumors as well. So another thing that we look at as far as response to chemotherapy is something called tumor burden. That's the size of the tumor, which is determined by the number of cells present. A small tumor burden is more responsive. As the tumor burden gets higher, there's more probability of drug resistance. And something that we use in order to uh, pre uh, show the response is the Combertian growth model. So what's shaded in yellow there is when the tumor is most responsive to chemotherapeutic agents. So, and you can see by the blue curve, that is when the tumor is in exponential growth. So, and you can imagine those first two things that I talked about, which is the growth rate and the volume of tumor, that's when it's most responsive. So early on in the tumor growth is when you see the most growth, sorry, is when you see the most growth and you have the lowest volume of tumor. However, after that, the growth rate slows a little bit and you have a higher volume, which is why you are not uh, seeing the response uh, to tumors at that level. These are the cell-specific, cycle-specific agents that I've mentioned on the left. On the right are cycle non-specific agents. I've underlined in red ones that we will be talking about today, but just to know that these agents uh, are also very effective against uh, GU malignancies. So as far as the dose of chemotherapeutic agents, it's, uh, they're dosed using something called the body surface area, or BSA. I've put the actual formulas at the bottom, uh, or the formula at the bottom of the actual slide, uh, in case you're interested. Something that uh, we take for granted is combination therapy, uh, so, which means that you're using more than one agent. Most of the chemotherapeutic, uh, uh, most of the, uh, chemotherapeutic um, 
regimens that we're looking at today are combination therapy. The reason so is because uh, they help to prevent uh, resistant clones. They're cytotoxic against both resting and dividing cells. Again, you're hitting the cell cycle in different stages. And finally, as opposed to acting in a silo, one and then the other, they can actually have a synergistic effect uh, with each other. So combination therapy is considered to be a major breakthrough in treatment of systemic disease. So, and it's been shown that combination therapy is superior to single drug therapy in terms of both a higher tumor response rate, an increased duration of remissions, and finally, uh, minimal chances of resistance. That being said, there are two main challenges to chemotherapy. One is drug resistance, and the second is uh, side effects or toxicity. As far as resistance goes, it's looked at really in, in two different uh, respects. The first is a primary resistance where you have a tumor that is very chemoresistant. One that we uh, have encountered uh, in our practice is renal cell carcinoma. Most uh, cytotoxic chemotherapeutic agents are not effective against renal cell carcinoma. Also, tumors can develop resistance or uh, have an acquired resistance that's during continuation of therapy, and that's due to the adapta adaptation of tumor cells uh, or due to mutations in one or more gene. As far as toxicity goes, again, uh, for the cell-specific, uh, for the cell, for the cycle-specific drugs, it's really going to affect the rapidly multiplying cells. Common toxicities that we see are nausea and vomiting, bone, bone marrow suppression or depression, alopecia. You can have uh, effects on the gonads, including oligospermia, infertility, impotence, and decreased ovulation in the woman. Certainly, uh, for a pregnant woman, you can see abortion, fetal death, or uh, teratogenicity. Uh, certainly, these chemotherapeutic agents, although you're treating cancer, they can be carcinogenic in and of themselves. And finally, you can see hyperuricemia, uh, which can affect the kidneys long term. There are situations when cytotoxic chemotherapy should not be given. Certainly, patients who have an active infection, and we will stop chemotherapy if these patients develop a significant infection while they're being treated. If they've been given a previous chemotherapy in less than two weeks, certainly patients who have an ongoing leukocypenia or a thrombocytopenia, although there are agents that can be given in order to bolster these counts in these patients. Certainly performance status, if you take a really sick patient with a poor performance status, you give them cytotoxic chemotherapy, you're going to be stopping that after a short period of time because they will not be able to tolerate it. It's absolutely contraindicated in patients who are pregnant, certainly in their first trimester. Those who have undergone major surgery within two weeks of starting the chemotherapeutic agent, the reason for this is because you have to let them heal, especially their incision, before you give the chemotherapy so it can heal properly. Uh, patients who will not follow up, so you have to be, these regimens are, are uh, they're very specific in how they're given, so if your patients are not going to follow up, then you really have to consider that when you're going to uh, be putting them through these uh, regimens. And certainly patients who can have psychological problems, you need to uh, really counsel them well before starting cytotoxic chemotherapy. All right, so a little bit uh, going into uh, immunotherapy. The yellow bar going across the slide here is your Im immune system in homeostasis. That's where we like to be, and certainly with uh, overreaction, uh, either responding to an internal or external threat, 
you can see uh, autoimmunity or a significant allergic reaction. And uh, with underreaction of your immune system, again, response to an internal or an external threat, certainly you, relearn, you worry about malignancies or a uh, life-threatening infection. These are the main players in the immune system. There is uh, T cells, which we're going to be talking about more today, which is cellular immunity. Uh, and there are several T cells. We're showing the helper here. There can also be cytotoxic T cells, uh, which actually kill the uh, tumor. And B cells are responsible for humor, uh, humoral uh, immunity, uh, which is, involves antibody production, and that is how uh, they mainly lead to uh, tumor kill. This uh, slide demonstrates uh, the T cell or cellular immunity. In the left panel, you have a uh, T cell that's not activated with its antigen receptor. The next panel, you see activation of the T cell. And one thing to notice here is that it is a two-signal process. So you have antigen presentation. However, you also have a co-stimulatory signal which activates uh, the actual T cell and they both have to be present for the T cell to be activated. Next, and going on to the next uh, panel, your T cell goes, your activated T cell goes to your cancer cell in order to kill it. However, after it recognizes the cancer cell as foreign through, ant through uh, the antigen which it's been primed to, this cancer cell in this panel takes advantage of something called an immune checkpoint which is something that the immune system has in play. It's a checkpoint, and it serves to not kill self tissue or self cells. So the cancer cell, uh, very, in a very tricky manner, will take advantage of that checkpoint and turn off the T cell and say, look, I'm self, don't kill me. And that is how the cancer cell can actually avoid our immune system. And that is where the checkpoint inhibitors come into play. It blocks that immune checkpoint, so the cancer cell cannot take advantage of the checkpoint, and the activated T cell goes on uh, for, uh, tumor, uh, for actual tumor kill. So when you look at this slide, you can see two areas of possible intervention. The first is the actual activation of the T cell, uh, so that co-stimulatory um, uh, signal, and the second, which is demonstrated in the fourth panel, is inhibition of the checkpoint. And that's what we're going to be talking about today uh, with most of our immunotherapy. So this is uh, T cell activation. Again, it's a two-signal process. You have antigen presentation as well as the co-stimulatory process, which is the interactivity of the B7 and CD28 um, uh, signals uh, in this actual slide. So, and that is going to be one area which we uh, can actually take advantage of. This is now the activated T cell interacting with the tumor. This was also demonstrated on the other slide. This is where the checkpoint inhibitors come into play. So the um, tumor on uh, the left-hand side takes advantage of one of the checkpoints at PD-1. However, on the right, uh, on the panel B, you see with the uh, monoclonal antibody, you're actually inhibiting the PD-1, so you don't allow that interaction, and this leads to uh, tumor death. So again, taking this uh, into context, the uh, T cell response uh, uh, 
the uh, immune reaction, cellular reaction, uh, cellular immunity, the analogy is kind of like driving a car. So you turn on the engine, which is uh, antigen presentation, so you recognize things as not self. Uh, and then there's stepping on the gas, which are these co-stimulatory signals. And that CD28B7 interaction is what I showed on the prior slide. And you can also step on the brake, which is checkpoint inhibition. However, if in certain situations where you want to take maximal advantage of the immune system, you step on the brake, you step on the gas, and you can take your foot off the brake, which is checkpoint inhibition, and that gives you your maximal uh, uh, utilization of the immune system against uh, these tumor cells. So looking at the actual cycle of immunity, um, you can see activation of tumor cells is around number three, and uh, cell kill is around number six. However, there are multiple levels throughout the immune cycle that we can also take advantage of as long as we elucidate um, the actual signals that are involved in those, and that is here. So, um, and you know, through a lot of research, they've been able to determine which signals are involved in which part of the immune cycles. So these are areas that we can actually take advantage of when we're creating our, our immunotherapies. What's listed in red are the inhibitors, and what's listed in green are the stimulators. So you look at this slide, and you can imagine uh, all the potential uh, um, utilizations of the immune system against um, uh, against tumor cells. And what I'm circling in red here are things that have already been developed, and you can see there's a lot of areas uh, which are uh, actively being pursued. So these are the uh, gas pedals, and these are the brakes, uh, which are uh, currently out there and available. Again, the gas pedals listed in blue, these are T-cell stimulation, and then uh, the brakes uh, listed in red are T-cell inhibitions, so you're going to activate the stimulators and you're going to uh, inhibit the brakes, so stepping on the gas and take, taking your foot off of the brake in order to drive the immune system forward uh, to treat these tumors in a maximal way. This is how uh, these brakes uh, and gas pedals are used. You have the agonist antibody for the gas pedal. You have these blocking antibodies uh, for the brakes and you are going to uh, prime your T cell maximally for uh, tumor kill uh, down the road. So in conclusion, both chemotherapy and immunotherapy are used for local as well as systemic treatments of urologic malignancies. Cytotoxic chemotherapy is most effective in cancers exhibiting rapidly dividing cells. There are cell cycle specific as well as nonspecific types of chemotherapy and they can be used uh, in synergy as combination, combination therapy. Immunotherapy exploits the natural balance of a body's immune system against foreign invaders, and these agents used in cancer in general either stimulate the re or repress the immune response. So with that being said, uh, we're gonna go ahead and get into our uh, tumor-specific talks, uh, starting with Anne talking about prostate cancer. Good morning. Um, so as Dr. Lawless said, I'm going to cover prostate cancer. Uh, most of my patients, uh, probably about 50% of the patients I see have prostate cancer, and thanks to uh, these two for trusting me with their patients. Um, 
So moving forward, prostate cancer, this is Thank you. Okay. So most of you are probably familiar with this traditional uh, uh, prostate cancer continuum with localized disease diagnosis on the left. Patients are treated with surgery or radiation treatment with or without androgen deprivation. They could have a recurrence in the castrate-sensitive disease state. Patients are started on androgen deprivation. They may recur, and then advanced systemic therapy is initiated. So we're going to focus on the, the latter end of this, as well as some of the newer agents that might change how we look at this progression. So traditional agents uh, include gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists. They stimulate the LH and FSH from the pituitary gland to the testis to release testo uh, testosterone. It works kind of like your home thermostat and a negative feedback system. So during the summer months when your uh, air conditioning is uh, getting messages, messages, messages to cool, 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 it'll finally shut off. So the testes do the same thing in response to these agonists. There can be a surge with this medication. So sometimes they're used um, in combination at the start of treatment. You're probably most familiar with luprolide, which is given uh, in three, four, and six-month depot preparations. GNRH uh, antagonists work directly to inhibit the pituitary, uh, so you don't see the surge with these medications. Uh, most common here is probably Degarelix. These are less convenient for the patient because they are given only monthly. The non-steroidal antiandrogens block the binding of the androgen at, uh, to the androgen receptor, so this is what might be given in combination with the agonist. This can cause gynecomastia, it can cause um, breast tenderness, it can also cause some GI side effects. The most common agent here is uh, bicalutamide. Patients should be monitored uh, with uh, liver function testing on these medications as well. Tradish, uh, so, uh, traditionally, orchiectomy and ketoconazole were used, but you don't see those very often these days. So this is a schematic showing it where these agents work, so at the pituitary, the GNRH analogs, at the testes, the surgical orchiectomy, and the antiandrogens. You can see a variety of durations for uh, these therapies, so patients with uh, intermediate risk prostate cancer who are going to go on radiation therapy would likely be placed on six months duration, versus high-risk patients who are about to go on radiation therapy may be placed on two to three years of therapy. And then biochemically recurrent and metastatic disease patients may uh, be on intermittent or continuous treatment. The side effects of hormonal therapy are pretty detrimental to these patients. So we as APPs are in a uh, prime, prime role to help manage the side effects or to, to help at least uh, reduce them. So the most common uh, systems that are affected are the cardiovascular, metabolic, and the musculoskeletal systems. These are most of the side effects that these patients are going to experience, and the patients that I see report most, if not all of these. So altered body composition, metabolic syndrome, uh, decreased bone health with osteoporosis and skeletal fractures, arterial stiffness and uh, cardiovascular morbidity. Almost everyone reports some level of fatigue, uh, loss of libido and erectile dysfunction, and then cognitive decline. Typically, the cognitive decline I see in patients who are on the longer-term ADT. 
So as APPs, how can we manage the side effects of hormonal therapy? Um, so with the cognitive decline, um, and you're gonna see I'm mentioning physical activity and exercise, I'm sorry, physical activity and diet in most of the side effects that we talk about um, because there's a lot of evidence that shows if patients are on a, uh, an exercise and diet regimen that they're gonna have improved um, side effects. So with regard to the cognitive decline, in addition, uh, challenging motor control exercises to help uh, with their stability and uh, prevent falls, as well as uh, encouraging uh, stress relief and uh, mental stimulation and brain uh, training. Other side effects, including altered body composition, metabolic syndrome, and fatigue, these should be closely monitored by the patient's PCP and a cardiologist if indicated. So serum labs, cholesterol panel, uh, glucose, and A1C. Again, as I mentioned, the exercise with both aerobic and strength training. Recommend a healthy, well-balanced diet. So I don't give them strict dietary guidelines, but I do refer them to the American Heart Association and the American Cancer Society websites. They both have um, very similar dietary guidelines. Again, they're kind of basic, but um, noting that patients should have a well-balanced diet, staying away from processed foods, staying away from alcohol and sodium. Uh, nutrition referral, if, uh, if indicated. Also recommending a routine sleep-wake cycle, so going to bed at the same time, waking at the same time, and de decreasing stimulants like caffeine or screen time. Maintaining cardiovascular health is also very important. Certainly if patients haven't already stopped smoking, they, they, they should do so. Uh, again, referral to a cardiologist if they're not already seeing one. Uh, again, aerobic exercise. Um, the diets that I mentioned, uh, the American Heart Association uh, website has the dietary guidelines and kind of um, they're, they're all listed here, using up as many calories as um, they're taking in and eating a variety of healthy foods. These patients commonly are going to report depression or depressed mood or emotional lability, and if they're not going to report them, then their spouse is going to report them. Um, to manage these, you can always refer for counseling or uh, for antidepressant treatment. Couples counseling has shown some benefit in these patients, um, and at the heart of a lot of the depression is the erectile dysfunction that results. So if patients are willing to undergo treatment, then you should certainly, certainly treat them for their ED. These patients are also gonna report hot flashes, just like when women go through menopause. Patients can be treated with acupuncture. There is some anecdotal evidence that shows that vitamin B helps uh, in patients with hot flashes. There is evidence that says that uh, patients, I'm sorry, women who are menopausal and who are experiencing hot flashes do benefit from uh, vitamin B. Magestral acetate and SSRIs can also be used. These patients are at an increased likelihood of developing uh, uh, decreased bone density or uh, decreased bone health. So any patient going on ADT should be recommended to start vitamin D and calcium. A lot of times I'll just recommend they pick up a caltrate because it has both and it's easier for them to remember to take one as opposed to multiple tablets. Patients who are going on uh, long-term ADT, you should have a baseline DEXA scan. And in patients who are higher risk, the anti-resorptive agents should be at least considered. Um, so high-risk patients include the elderly, smokers and ethanol users, and the thin, frail patients. The bone anti-resorptive agents are very strong agents. Uh, patients who are going to go on treatment should go to, uh, or should have a thorough dental evaluation and a dental work done prior to undergoing treatment, uh, because while it is rare, osteonecrosis of the jaw does occur. And so the, the purpose for these is to treat or prevent osteoporosis while patients are on ADT, 
and to prevent skeletal-related events associated with the disease. So agents include zoledronic acid. This inhibits bone osteoclasts. It's given once monthly for patients with uh, bony metastatic disease. Uh, there are dose uh, reductions for patients with decreased renal function, and for that reason, their renal function needs to be monitored at least monthly while they're on treatment. Denosumab is a newer agent. This promotes osteoclast and bone resorption. Um, it does minimize and treat cancer therapy-induced osteoporosis as well as minimize skeletal-related events. Uh, these patients can develop hypocalcemia, so their calcium levels need to be monitored rather closely. This is also given once monthly for patients with bony metastatic disease. Here's listed some of the novel treatment combinations for uh, non-castrate advanced prostate cancer patients. The charted and stampede trials looked at ADT with docetaxel, and the latitude and stampede trials looked at ADT with abiraterone and prednisone. So in the charted trial, patients with high-risk disease, so these are patients with uh, at least four lesions on a bone scan and the presence of a measurable visceral lesion were placed on either ADT with docetaxel or ADT alone. And the primary endpoint was overall survival, showing uh, patients on ADT and uh, docetaxel overall survival of 57.6 months versus 44 months on uh, ADT alone. The latitude uh, trial, uh, results of which were published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2017, uh, placed patients with newly diagnosed uh, high-risk metastatic hormone-naive prostate cancer and at least two of the high-risk criteria, including uh, Gleason score of eight or higher, uh, three or more uh, lesions on bone scan, and presence of measure, uh, measurable visceral lesion. So these patients were placed on either ADT with abiraterone and prednisone or ADT with placebo, and the primary endpoints looked at uh, reduction of death and reduction for radiographic progression-free survival. So 38% re risk reduction for death in the uh, ADT without aradarone and 53% risk reduction for patients with um, radiographic progression-free survival. So we can see that there's going to be a change to this traditional progression, something that looks a little bit more like this, where we have newer agents much earlier in the progression of disease. So the NCCN guidelines for castrate uh, non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, there's no consensus. Uh, they do recommend uh, continuing on the androgen deprivation therapy, uh, as well as considering apalutamide, uh, abiraterone, or enzalutamide as well. So apalutamide was recently approved for non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. It's a non-steroidal antiandrogen, binds directly to the ligand-binding domain of the androgen receptor and prevents androgen receptor translocation, DNA binding, and androgen receptor-mediated transcription. Side effects from this can include hypothyroidism, so their um, TSH needs to be monitored and, uh, placed on, and the patient could be placed on thyroid replacement therapy if indicated. Uh, patients could develop a skin rash, and as with any ADT, their bone health needs to be uh, monitored. So these uh, results of the Spartan trial were released just in the New England Journal of Medicine in April of this year. Um, this was a phase three trial involving men with non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer and a PSA doubling time of 10 months or less. This looked at 1,200 patients who were randomly assigned to receive apalutamide or a placebo. They were continued on their ADT with the primary endpoint being metastasis-free survival. So pretty remarkable, 40.5 months in the patients on treatment versus 16.2 on the placebo. So the NCCN guidelines for this year for metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, again, are to uh, maintain levels of castration. 
uh, to consider anti-resorptive therapies, and then in the patients who are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic with non-visceral METs, consider Cipulusa-CLT, which is an immunotherapy. Again, it's approved for non-visceral, asymptomatic, or minimally symptomatic uh, metastatic castrate-resistant disease. Um, these patients uh, could undergo radiation therapy for uh, symptomatic uh, metastatic uh, bone lesions. It works by, uh, so blood draw, the T cells are harvested by leukapheresis, cultured and stimulated, and then reinfused three days later. This is given typically in three cycles, two weeks apart. The data shows prolonged survival, however, there is not evidence in the PSA or radiographic change, so it can be uh, difficult to know when or if it's working. This is a schematic just showing blood draw, leukapheresis, uh, culturing, and then reinfusion. So NCCN guidelines for metastatic castrate-resistant disease continued. So for patients with um, symptomatology uh, with metastatic visceral METs, uh, palliative radiation therapy for those uh, painful bony lesions, as well as abiraterone, enzalutamide, docetaxel, radium-223 also for bone METs, and secondary hormonal manipulation or corticosteroids. Abiraterone has been approved for metastatic castrate-resistant disease with or without uh, visceral METs, both pre- and post-chemotherapy. This is an androgen biosynthesis inhibitor. It's given once daily with twice daily prednisone. It does have a, a large number of drug interactions, especially for patients with hepatic impairment, patients who are on antifungals or HIV medications, also patients who are on seizure medications. These patients require very, very, very close follow-up, and we'll look at the schedule uh, in just a minute, but um, LFTs, electrolytes, maintaining cardiovascular health, and um, uh, dose reductions for pa patients with hepatic disease. And so this is the follow-up schedule, and as APPs, we are, again, in a prime role to help patients stick to this very tedious uh, schedule. Results of the Cougar trial were published in the New England Journal of Medicine in May of 2011. This looked at uh, 1,100 patients who had previously received docetaxel. They were randomized to receive uh, prednisone twice daily with either abiraterone or a placebo. Primary um, endpoints were overall survival and showing uh, improvement in the uh, patient's in the patients on abiraterone, as well as improvement in PSA progression, progression-free survival, and um, PSA response rates. Uh, further results of the Cougar trial were published a year and a half later. Uh, this looked at patients uh, who received abiraterone without previous chemotherapy. So patients, again, were randomized to receive abiraterone or a placebo, overall survival, and progression-free, uh, uh, radiographic progression-free survival, both uh, were improved in the uh, treatment group. So enzalutamide was approved for metastatic uh, castrate-resistant prostate cancer as well, with or without visceral METs, both pre- and post-chemotherapy. This is an androgen receptor blocker. Um, it's given uh, 160 milligrams daily. It is contraindicated in patients with severe hepatic impairment, also in patients with uh, head injury, stroke, or seizure disorders. This, like abiraterone, has a lot of um, medication uh, interactions, so patients with hepatic impairment, uh, seizure disorders, um, also caution in patients with warfarin, uh, sorry, patients who are on warfarin or immunosuppressants. Results of the AFFIRM trial were published in September of 2012. This uh, looked at men 
on enzalutamide after chemotherapy, so men were randomly assigned to receive oral enzalutamide or a placebo. Median um, overall survival was 18.4 months versus 13.6 months in the uh, placebo group, and then all secondary endpoints were met as well. Uh, prevail, um, the PREVAIL trial uh, results were published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2014. This was a phase three study. It looked at 1,700 patients receiving enzalutamide or a placebo uh, who had not previously received chemotherapy. And again, show, uh, showed improvement in radiographic progression-free survival of si at 12 months, 65% in the treatment uh, arm versus 14% in the placebo. Overall survival uh, in the treatment, 72% versus 63% in the placebo. So there's always a question of wh which agent to use first, which is one of the questions a lot of the clini clinical trials look at, but when do you omit patients from one of these agents? So avoid enzalutamide in patients who are at risk of falls or have uh, gait disturbance or neurologic issues, significant baseline fatigue or uh, mild baseline pain, as well as polypharmacy, so patients who are on a lot of medications. Avoid abiraterone in patients with significant CHF or baseline edema, um, renal impairment, and as well as diabetes. Chemotherapy for many years was thought to be ineffective in patients with prostate cancer. However, docetaxel was uh, approved in 2004, showing survival benefit in patients who had failed other metastatic castrate-resistant uh, castrate uh, treatments. And then cabazitaxel was approved six years later for patients who were failing docetaxel. The radioisotopes, uh, including radium-223, samarium-153, and strontium-89, uh, all show improvement in patients with uh, bony metastatic disease. Radium-223 shows survival benefit and symptomatic improvement. This is given uh, in six monthly injections. It's usually post-chemotherapy or for chemo-ineligible patients, whereas uh, strontium-89 and samarium are for palliation only. They don't show um, survival benefit. So the uh, guidelines continued for second-line treatments. We could consider docetaxel, enzalutamide, abiraterone, alternative chemotherapy agents, cabazitaxel, pembrolizumab, and clinical trials. So this leads us to ask, where are we going next? So a lot of the clinical trials are looking at sequencing as well as uh, combination therapies, which we've looked at some of the results of those trials, um, and of course there are more to come. So genetic testing, so of course there's the, the place for genomic testing, which looks at the actual tumor itself and determines when patients should go for uh, more aggressive treatment or follow-up treatment. Then there's tumor sequencing, which looks at the tissue and helps to identify which agents would work on that specific disease. And then there's genetic testing that looks at uh, specific mutations in patients who are at higher risk for developing cancer or more aggressive cancers and which patients should be screened more closely. The uh, Philadelphia Prostate Cancer Consensus Conference was held in 2017 uh, at our institution. The agreement there was, uh, to, was moderate to test all men with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer regardless of family history. Of note, our institution was the first to uh, provide comprehensive genetic uh, workup for prostate cancer patients. So there is a lot more work that needs to be done uh, with looking at germline mutations and genetics. However, there's sufficient or there's plenty of evidence that shows that the BRCA2 gene is very prevalent in patients who present uh, with metastatic prostate cancer. So 
Um, additionally, germline mutations in 11, are present in 11.8% of metastatic uh, prostate cancer patients versus 4.6 with localized disease. So take-home points, um, so approximately 90% of metastatic castrate-resistant uh, prostate cancer patients harbor clinically actionable molecular alterations. We do have identifiable gene mutations, and that 23% of metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer patients harbor DNA repair pathway aberrations and 8% germline findings. Prostate cancer adapts to the castrate microenvironment. Uh, advanced prostate cancer harbors clinically actionable molecular alterations, which I did just mention, and this 11.8% of metastatic disease uh, is present with germline mutations. So as APPs, again, we're uh, in a great uh, position to be able to monitor these patients with their routine screening, labs, including um, uh, out of, treating out-of-order limits, or out-of-normal limits, excuse me, and ordering their scans, as well as administering treatments, managing toxicities, um, maintaining bone health and quality of life, as well as the side effects of their treatments. Okay, now Dr. Trabolsi is going to talk with you about bladder cancer. Thanks, Ann and Costas, and thank you all for coming out this morning. So as Costa said, I'm Ed Trabolsi, I'm also at Jefferson. Um, we have a fairly uh, cohesive, comprehensive team, um, and it's something that we're quite proud of. Um, not every center integrates APPs, integrates genetic counseling, integrates medical and radiation oncology, but we have a uh, combined clinic every Wednesday where patients sort of get one-stop shopping uh, and see all of us, and so it's quite uh, convenient. So switching gears a little bit to bladder cancer, uh, in terms of what we'll go over, uh, we'll talk about some of the epidemiology and staging. Uh, we'll talk about some of the diagnostics and procedures that we do. And then most importantly, what the different treatment options are for the different stages. Uh, we divide uh, bladder cancer into non-muscle invasive, what we used to call superficial bladder cancer, or invasive bladder cancer, or metastatic bladder cancer. Uh, it's about the fourth most common cancer in men, tenth most common in women. Uh, one of the differences, one of the reasons we think there's a big difference is uh, because uh, cigarette smoking, tobacco exposure is more common in men than women. There's also a, a big environmental uh, exposure difference. Uh, there's a, a lot of the bladder cancers we think are directly related to environmental toxins besides just smoking, so paints, dyes, petrochemicals. Um, so men tend to be in factories, truck drivers, refinery workers, and that also probably contributes to the uh, gender disparity. Uh, there's a lot more people out there with bladder cancer than are dying from it, and that's because about three-quarters of them are non-invasive or what we call superficial. And those, I usually will counsel my patients sort of are a nuisance, uh, not a threat. So kind of like polyps in the colon, you know, we try to not scare these patients too much, but indicate to them that the recurrence rates are common and they need to come back for regular follow-up. It tends to be a disease of older patients, average age in the late 60s. Uh, the ultimate treatment, radical cystectomy, fortunately we only need to do in a small minority of patients. About 9,000 uh, cystectomies are done every year when you look at 63,000 new diagnoses every year. 
So when we talk about low-risk, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, these are the superficial uh, tumors that don't have any roots, they don't have any invasion, uh, usually papillary or polyp uh, configuration. We categorize them as TA. Uh, the high-risk non-muscle invasive group are those that have some adverse features that make them at higher risk for both uh, coming back, progression, uh, or uh, recurrence, or getting worse, progression. So those are patients that um, uh, cytologically, the tumors look very aggressive. Uh, they may have superficial invasion into the lamina propria, which we categorize as T1. And then also this concept of carcinoma in situ, CIS. It's perhaps a little bit of a misnomer in other uh, solid tumors. CIS, we think, is sort of premalignant and not necessarily very aggressive. In bladder cancer, we use the terminology CIS. This is a flat tumor on the lining of the urethelium without actually making a polyp. And that's actually a very aggressive uh, cancer. If you look uh, visually and uh, uh, cytogenetically, they're actually very aggressive tumors. And then uh, uh, the worst patients are those that have muscle invasive. So those are tumors that when we biopsy them, we actually show invasion into the muscularis propria, the deep muscle wall of the bladder. And they actually can sometimes, unfortunately, go all the way through the bladder. So the diagnosis is made cystoscopically. So this is a cystoscope, uh, endoscope that we put in through the urethra into the bladder. Uh, anything that looks polypoid or papillary, uh, is, we have a very high level of suspicion. And we will biopsy either with a, a, a cold cup biopsy forceps. I, I explain to patients we may take little bites. Or we do a resection, which is with a loop where we can get a deep, wide swath of the bladder. So focusing specifically on the lower risk end of the spectrum, the uh, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer patients, again, we divide them into different risk strata. Low-grade patients, uh, generally, uh, we worry about the least in terms of progression getting worse. Uh, those patients will, um, pretty much every bladder cancer patient will, for their initial workup, do a scope and get some sort of imaging, uh, CT or an MRI, to make sure that the kidneys and ureters are normal. Uh, when we talk about urethelial carcinoma, a tumor of the urethelium, probably 95% of those are in the bladder, but that urethelial lining actually extends up the ureters into the funnel part of the kidney, the renal pelvis, and so you can, in about 5 or 10% of patients, actually get urethelial tumors in other areas of the urinary tract. Once they've had it in the bladder, uh, these tumors can try to creep other places, and so those patients that are diagnosed, you always want to get some sort of schedule of imaging because about 5 or 10% of patients with a primary bladder tumor eventually may develop a tumor in the ureter or the renal pelvis. Um, typically, our goal for uh, superficial low-grade tumors is really just to get rid of recurrences. Uh, the risk of uh, progressing to muscle invasive disease is usually in the single digits. Uh, so we're looking cystoscopically for surveillance, and these patients come in regularly, typically on every three to six month uh, scope schedule initially, and then we space it out. Patients that have superficial invasion, what we call T1 disease, um, those patients we typically will re repeat a resection, we'll re-biopsy them. What we're worried about is undiagnosed muscle invasive disease, and so we want to have, be accurate as, to the best of our ability at their initial diagnosis to really give the most accurate uh, prognosis and also to appropriately intensify their treatment if needed. 
patients that have recurrent uh, tumors, and that is more the, the, the rule rather than the exception, these are patients where we'll think about treatments in the bladder to try to reduce the risk of recurrence. Um, uh, we'll use post-operative uh, chemotherapy such as mitomycin or intravescal treatments on an induction course. When we start talking about the high-risk non-muscle invasive patients, these patients uh, are much higher risk of progression to invasive disease uh, in the 20 to 30 percent range. So those patients require a much uh, more intense follow-up. And this is, uh, especially in the recurrent setting, patients that have risk factors, either high-grade or recurrence or superficial invasion or carcinoma in site 2 or uh, multifocal tumors, multiple tumors all at once, that come back, even though they don't demonstrate a tumor in the muscle, we need to uh, counsel these patients that they're at risk uh, of progression, and we would actually consider a radical cystectomy in these patients. Uh, these patients all require some sort of intravesical therapy to try to work on reducing the recurrence rates and the progression rates as well. So when we look at um, patients that undergo um, uh, TURBT, transurethral resection of bladder tumor, unfortunately our diagnostic accuracy is not as good as we'd like. And so this is one study looking at the quality of the initial diagnosis. And uh, one of the things that we want to really demonstrate is both that there was muscle present in the specimen, so we're going deep enough uh, on our resection to, to get some muscle uh, for the pathologist to look at, and then also that it's not involved. And so when they looked at uh, a, a population-based study, uh, only about um, half of the TRP, TRBT reports actually demonstrate that there was muscle present for evaluation in the specimen. And about 20% uh, of the pathology reports didn't even mention whether there was muscle there or not. So when we're interfacing with our pathologist, uh, we want to pin them down, say, you know, if, it's, if there's no muscle there, we want to uh, go back and re-resect these patients. Um, and when we look at what we would call a suboptimal resection, you know, up to a third or more of patients, um, they are much more likely to have uh, worse disease than we expect. Um, and there is definitely disparities in, in uh, which patients get sort of a suboptimal uh, resection. For whatever reason, uh, we, uh, women are more commonly not going to have as aggressive a resection as men, probably because of our bias that we don't expect women to suffer a, uh, nasty bladder cancer as much as we expect it in men. Certainly uh, socioeconomic or racial disparities are very common that may be related to access of care. Um, and then also when you look at where they get treated, um, non-NCCN or NCI-designated facilities uh, tend to be a little less aggressive in their initial resection. When you look at bladder cancer-specific mortality, and you can see here um, in the red, these are uh, pathology reports where the presence of muscularis propria on the pathword report was not mentioned they have the highest rates of recurrence and death from bladder cancer. So it's not a trivial uh, uh, point here. So in the disease spectrum of bladder cancer, we have the initial diagnosis and then we have uh, surveillance. And so patients that have adverse uh, risk factors, high-grade tumors, carcinoma in situ, 
um, or superficial invasive uh, patients, those are the ones that are at highest risk for either recurring or getting worse. Those patients should all get some sort of intravascular therapy. If they've had two or more recurrences despite our best intravascular agents, those patients really should be counseled strongly that their bladder is not worth saving. We should take it out. When we talk about intravesical therapy, these are uh, local treatments given through a catheter into the bladder, basically to coat the inside of the bladder, coat the urethelium, uh, and have a local effect. Uh, we look at either chemotherapy, most commonly mitomycin. Uh, also, just recently, the last week, uh, was published in the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association, intravesical uh, gemcitabine given immediately post-op as well. Um, and then uh, after, when you get out of the OR, uh, we can give uh, immune therapy such as BCG uh, and or interferon. And we can also utilize some of the chemotherapeutics in this space as well. Again, mitomycin, gemcitabine, and valrubicin are the most common. BCG is an ancient drug. It was uh, uh, first, uh, well, the bacteria was first identified by the Pasteur Institute in the early 1900s. I'm not sure who ever dreamed of putting this in people's bladders, but we've been doing it for almost 50 years. Um, we're not even really sure exactly how it works, but all of the studies over and over show that it is the best agent to both reduce the recurrence rates and also reduce the progression rates for bladder cancer. It's a uh, uh, mycobacterium similar to tuberculosis, um, Bacillae calmergeren, um, and it's actually used as a TB vaccine subcutaneously in uh, third world countries. The best uh, mechanistic uh, theory that we have is that it stimulates an inflammatory response, and the way I tell my patients, it's sort of like a forest fire, and as the fire gets, uh, burns through your bladder, any bladder cancer cells that are there, you know, get burned up with it. Um, typically, it's once a week for six weeks as an induction course. Um, we counsel patients, and this is where the APPs will be very involved uh, in, in the administration of these agents, um, that you, uh, you sort of take the full day from the installation till the next morning, and every time you urinate, you pour bleach in the uh, toilet. Uh, you don't want to spread this bacteria around. Uh, these patients should also use barrier methods for contraception. Um, and you counsel them about the side effects. The most common side effects are minor bladder irritation, uh, urgency, frequency, a little bit of burning. Uh, sometimes can have some flu-like symptoms, um, low-grade fevers. The thing that we really worry about the most is systemic BCG infection. It's very rare, and that's usually categorized, or uh, you, you'll know they are having it by very uh, high fevers, sustained fevers. Uh, that's an emergency they need to know to come back in. Um, we try to have them hold it in their bladder for two hours. It's not always possible. We tell the patients to try to do their best. Uh, sometimes we'll even pre-medicate with some overactive bladder medicines if we know that they're having trouble. We'll tell them to avoid caffeinated beverages, maybe hold their diuretic the morning of their treatment so they can really try to hold it as best they can. The induction, as I mentioned, is once a week for six weeks, and then there's fairly strong evidence from uh, an older clinical trial at a SWOG looking at the uh, benefits of maintenance therapy. This is a three-week regimen sort of to reprime the immune system, keep the immune system uh, active. 
For patients that are having lots of symptoms, you can also cut down the dose. A little bit of BCG is better than no BCG, so sometimes we'll do a half dose or third strength dose as well. So when we look at the um, uh, sort of the pathways, at the top is the, um, oh, we have a pointer, is the urethelium, and the BCG interacts with the urethelium, and then this will um, affect um, uh, bladder cancer cells. It'll get internalized into bladder cancer cells, and then, uh, as Costins mentioned earlier, it'll cause antigen presentation, and then it'll stimulate uh, dendritic cells and stimulate the uh, immune uh, cascade, and then therefore uh, tumor death. A little more complicated than my forest fire analogy. Interferon also is used as another immune therapy in bladder cancer. Uh, can be used with BCG to augment it, sometimes used alone. Uh, we know that interferon in a variety of different tumors is immune, uh, uh, effective immune therapy um, and it has anti-proliferative effects and anti-angiogenic effects as well. This is basically a, a second-line agent. Intravesical chemotherapy are using alkylating agents, uh, so these directly bind to DNA and sort of gunk up the works. Uh, the most common are mitomycin, gemcitabine, and valrubicin. Uh, valrubicin is an adriamycin analog. Um, it gets absorbed into bladder cancer cells better than adriamycin. It does have quite a bit of side effects. It's a little bit caustic, so you need to counsel patients. Um, and it's got a very specific indication, although we use it off-label um, for other uh, patients. Uh, so patients whose carcinoma in situ are unresponsive to BCG and who refuse or are not medically fit for a radical cystectomy. It's a very narrow approval. This was from probably 30 years ago, um, 20 years ago. Uh, nowadays, it might have a lot harder time getting approved, but um, these patients for ralrubicin, you demonstrate that they failed BCG, and that's an 800 milligram uh, intravesical installation, again, once a week for six weeks. So uh, for the higher risk uh, non-invasive uh, patients or the recurrent patients, we typically will do a cystoscopy uh, every three months for at least the first year, and then we'll start spacing it out. Uh, we'll get upper urinary tract imaging, so either a CT or an MRI on a yearly or every other year basis. And then the maintenance schedule for BCG after the first six-week six induction is every three months for the first six months, and then every six months for two to three years, depending on how they tolerate it. Uh, once we get out to the two or three year mark, if they haven't recurred, fortunately their risk of recurrence really is much less, and that's when we can really start spacing out their cystoscopies for patient quality of life. So this is a, a demonstration similar to what Costa showed earlier, and uh, this is to remind me that um, immune therapy the first immune therapy uh, in solid tumors was actually BCG for bladder cancer. All right, uh, we're not advancing now. There we go. And so uh, a second coming of immune therapy, uh, this, now we have the checkpoint inhibitions, uh, which uh, inhib inhibitors, which Costas mentioned as well. So when we talk about the role of the APP for superficial bladder cancer, certainly, all of these intravesical treatments need to be overseen and monitored, um, and the decision, go or no-go, you know, should we give the treatment, typically that'll be uh, an in our practice or an APP. 
if they're having hematuria, dysuria, if they're not feeling well, it's perfectly appropriate to check a urine culture and hold for a week or two. Um, if they're really looking toxic, you know, you might want to even send them to the emergency room. Uh, also, uh, keeping track of these patients. Since they are on a fairly regimented and intense uh, surveillance uh, schedule, uh, it's easy for these patients to get lost, and so that's also a big uh, part of the uh, overall patient-centric management. Keeping track of their imaging, keeping track of their cytology, when to do the next cystoscopy, these are all uh, very important roles that a lot of uh, offices, their APPs will be involved with. So talking now, switching gears to the invasive bladder patients, so this is a diagram. Uh, the dark red here is the muscularis propria, and so this is a tumor that's uh, invading down into the muscle. These are the patients that we're really worried about. This is the, the threatening kind of bladder cancer. Uh, when we look at a schematic of, of normal urethelium, we can see that you can get hyperplastic urethelium that will then turn into polyps. You can get dysplastic urethelium, which then can turn into carcinoma in situ, and then more very commonly into invasive tumors. Uh, and the dysplastic can also become high-grade papillary tumors as well. So the recurrence risk we worry more about for the papillary tumors, the progression risk we worry more about for the carcinoma in situ and the invasive tumors. Uh, when we talk about muscle invasive bladder cancer, again, you need to have a good quality TRBT to see if where, where they are in terms of depth of invasion. Uh, you want to stage them to make sure they don't have metastatic disease and then talk about the best uh, uh, trimodal therapy that we're going to offer these patients. Uh, so muscle invasive bladder cancer would be categorized as stage two or three. Uh, these are patients that show urethelial carcinoma invading into the deep muscle of the bladder. We typically will get staging CT of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis or sometimes MRI if the renal function won't allow. If there's any hint uh, or concern of symptomatology, we might also get a bone scan as well. Um, patients that have muscle invasive disease, the standard of care would be radical cystectomy uh, with or without uh, chemotherapy. Patients that are not surgically fit, uh, older, uh, poor performance status, or patients that refuse, uh, chemoradiation uh, can be offered uh, as a curative therapy. Uh, it's uh, in Europe used a little bit more than in the U.S. Uh, the European uh, uh, focus sometimes a little bit more of quality of life than quantity of life, um, and they can consider radiotherapy with chemotherapy uh, with surgery as equivalent. So the, the role of chemotherapy with radical cystectomy was an open question until this uh, seminal uh, landmark article was uh, published in 2005 in the New England Journal. So this looked at neoadjuvant chemotherapy plus, plus cystectomy compared with cystectomy alone. So these are patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer going to the OR for cystectomy, and they randomized half the patients got upfront chemo prior to surgery versus uh, surgery alone. And you can see here that the patients getting upfront chemotherapy had a significant survival benefit compared to cystectomy alone. This used uh, three cycles of standard dosing MVAC. MVAC is a combination chemotherapy based on, uh, centered on cisplatin. When you looked at uh, the pathologic T0 rate, so the patients 
that when we finally got their bladder out, had no evidence of residual disease, the patients that got preoperative chemo, almost 40% of them uh, had a, a complete response, uh, indicative of the power and strength of the chemotherapy regimen. This has been upheld in a variety of subsequent phase three studies looking at different neoadjuvant cisplatin combinations uh, at different institutions, all of which show a benefit for giving upfront um, uh, chemotherapy prior to radical cystectomy. Um, so in arguably, not everyone agrees, but arguably that it would be considered the standard of care in patients that are able to undergo uh, chemotherapy. It's in all of the uh, guidelines, including NCCN and European guidelines. Um, patients that uh, are, have a worse performance status, that have poor kidney function, that won't tolerate cisplatin, uh, have other um, reasons not to give cisplatin, such as ototoxicity or hearing loss. Not everyone uh, is appropriate for chemotherapy, but if appropriate, we should, um, should offer it. The other sort of common refrain we hear is why not just wait until we see what the pathology is, sort of personalize which patients need chemotherapy. And this is a great slide that one of our medical oncologists gave us, uh, sort of uh, what the patients look like um, when they're getting their chemo. And so if you give it neoadjuvantly, they're actually, they do quite well. If you try to give it after surgery, those patients are beaten up. And a lot of them, even if you want to give them chemo, are not going to get it in a timely fashion. So this timing really does matter. The counter argument or the alternative approach would be to give adjuvant chemotherapy, so doing their surgery, seeing what their pathology is, and then deciding on a, on a risk stratified uh, fashion who needs it and who doesn't. Um, but like I said, the sequence really does uh, matter, and upwards of a third of the patients or more, for one reason or another, surgical complications, failure to thrive, uh, prolonged uh, hospitalization, won't actually be able to get chemotherapy. The, the converse is absolutely not true. It's a very rare scenario where we'll start a patient on chemo and then can't get them to the OR. When we look at, um, uh, this is the EORTC of uh, immediate versus delayed chemotherapy. Uh, this uh, was stopped early because of poor accrual. Looking at um, adjuvant MVAC um, given right after surgery for patients that had adverse pathology or waiting until they actually developed metastasis, deferred chemotherapy when they relapsed. Uh, the fact remains, even though it was stopped early, there was benefit to giving it earlier. And this goes along with what Costas said, that the lower the tumor burden, earlier in the disease course, the chemotherapy is going to work better. Now getting to the, the, the worst uh, end of the spectrum for bladder cancer, patients that have metastatic bladder cancer, uh, there are very effective traditional sort of old line uh, chemotherapeutics. Uh, if you look at cisplatinum, probably the, the highest uh, activity, overall response rate for cisplatinum about 28%. Methotrexate, also part of the MVAC category, about 29%. Uh, so there are options, but unfortunately, uh, the cure rate's not so good. When you look at combination therapy, so the, the, one of the older uh, studies looking at methotrexate vinblastin versus cisplatin methotrexate uh, vinblastin, showed significant benefit in the metastatic patients that got combination therapy. This really started the combination cisplatin-based regimen uh, 
um, bandwagon quite strongly. When you looked at uh, uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, they looked at um, five different studies, 200 patients, overall response rates uh, with MVAC of 67% with actually a complete response of 24%. Uh, the overall survival, though, was really quite poor, uh, only just over a year. Um, other studies looking at MVAC at other institutions, similar, maybe not as good a response rate, but about 50% response rate, complete response rate in the 15% range. Uh, looking at different combinations, MVAC seemed to be the winner when you looked at all of the different combinations. Uh, these studies were done in the 80s. Um, and then the concept of dose dense or accelerated MVAC um, has come into play. And so giving uh, uh, the drugs much quicker, more aggressively, actually um, uh, showed benefit. So if we look at, um, uh, especially in patients that are going to the OR, the idea of giving things quicker is very attractive. And so dose-dense MVAC is three cycles, each or two weeks long, so you get all the chemo done within six weeks. And you wait three, three or four, six weeks, and then go to the OR. And um, so these patients, you know, one of the worries about neoadjuvant chemo, are we going to waste our time for a, a tumor that may not respond to chemo and delay their surgery? Uh, neoadjuvant MVAC seems to obviate some of those concerns as well. When you look at the uh, toxicity, actually fairly well tolerated, so even though we're giving it aggressively, giving it quickly, patients actually did very well. 84% uh, of patients got all three cycles, um, and uh, the majority of them only had minor grade one or two uh, adverse events. Um, the eight patients that had grade three uh, are shown here on the left uh, for a variety of different reasons, usually either fatigue or myelosuppression. Uh, they also had similar sort of disease re, uh, response that we saw from the old neoadjuvant standard regimen MVAC. Uh, no cancer left in 38%, which is exactly the same. Uh, and if you look at downstaging to T1 or TA disease, uh, almost two-thirds of the patients had downstaging when you got their bladder out. Um, Gemcitabine cisplatin is another regimen uh, that was used, and that's been compared to standard dosing MVAC. Um, and this was uh, in the metastatic uh, disease population. And the standard MVAC uh, regimen was actually pretty toxic, so they were looking for other op uh, options. And if you look at the, um, the uh, this was a non-inferiority trial, and the results were amazingly identical. So the complete response, partial response, and response rates between the two regimens uh, was identical. This is what led Memorial Sloan Kettering to pretty much shift their whole uh, chemotherapy uh, approach for metastatic bladder cancer from MVAC to gemcitabine cisplatin. When you looked at time to progression, also identical, uh, and overall survival was identical. When you looked at the toxicity, there was definitely a lot more infectious uh, side effects with standard dose MVAC. Uh, mucositis was worse. Uh, a lot more hair loss, um, and uh, a lot of uh, neutropenia and neutropenic fever. There even were uh, higher toxic deaths, and those are usually infectious-related. Um, 
Nowadays, we've had a whole host of immune therapies, and these are all checkpoint inhibitors that are approved for metastatic bladder cancer. As Costas mentioned, I'm not going to repeat the mechanisms, but PD-1 is one of the co-stimulatory molecules. It's one of the uh, da down regulators, and if you in inhibit a down regulator, you step off the brake. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go through this again. So these are just a short list of the different uh, checkpoint inhibitors that have been improved in metastatic urethelial carcinoma. Uh, I'm not going to, I'm probably going to butcher the names, atezolizumab, dervalumab, nivolumab, pembrolizumab, and uh, avalumabab. Um, they're all different monoclonal antibodies, either to the PD-1 uh, receptor or the PD-1 ligand, what would bind that receptor. They all showed uh, fairly good response rates and durable uh, response rates and improvement in, in overall survival. These were all in patients failing cisplatin. Uh, this led to uh, uh, a large trial, um, and one of our um, former medical oncologists, Jeannie Hoffman, uh, uh, treated a lot of our patients on this trial. Um, this was the approval of atezolizumab uh, in second-line treatment after platinum-based chemotherapy, uh, showing um, uh, when we looked at resist criteria, so patients that had a disease on CAT scan, um, showing improvement with atezolizumab. And if you look at um, uh, patients that overexpressed PDL1, and this is by a uh, immunohistochemical stain, uh, those patients shown up here tend to do better than patients at under, and here also in blue, those patients did better. Uh, so it makes sense if you ha if you're targeting a specific molecule and you're overexpressing that molecule that re you'll respond better. This was overall tolerated quite well. Um, it is not a traditional chemotherapeutic, um, and so the uh, mucositis, uh, nausea and vomiting, uh, myelosuppression are not uh, an issue with these drugs. Uh, they do have, um, you know, in a post-chemo uh, sicker population, you wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily be surprised that a lot of these patients have fatigue, but the overall grade three, the serious adverse events rates are all very uh, low. Uh, pembrolizumab was uh, very quickly after atezolizumab approved for second-line therapy in advanced urethelial carcinoma. Uh, this was a, a large trial, about 750 patients, uh, and this also showed survival benefit uh, using pembrolizumab. When you look at um, the waterfall plot, you can see that the vast majority of patients uh, responded to these drugs, and so they are very active. And the toxicity really was quite, uh, quite reasonable. Uh, looking at um, any adverse event, I can't see that, and um, comparing chemotherapy with pembrolizumab, uh, the, the uh, adverse events were much higher in the chemotherapy than pembrolizumab. When you move uh, atezolizumab up to the first line, and this is for patients that uh, are uh, ineligible for um, uh, cisplatin, which would be the standard of care, um, this was an, in the Invigor 210 trial. This was 120 patients. Um, 
and this uh, also in pembrolizumab. So these drugs all had very similar trial designs. They all sort of came out rapid fire. So when we talk about uh, what we would consider the standard of care, certainly for platin-eligible patients, uh, cisplatin uh, combination therapy certainly still has a role. Uh, for the platin-ineligible, this is where the checkpoint inhibitors. But uh, there is phase, one, uh, phase three data for um, first-line therapy with the checkpoint inhibitors as well. And so for patients that you're hesitant to give cytotoxic chemotherapy, a lot of the medical oncologists are shifting towards checkpoint inhibition as well. Talking about the upper tract, so tumors of the renal pelvis or ureter, like I mentioned earlier, it's fairly uncommon. Um, we assume that our treatments for bladder cancer will uh, carry over to the upper urinary tract, although we're not always sure if that assumption is correct. But since it's the same exact uh, tissue type, we'd expect similar response rates. Um, and so the role of neoadjuvant chemotherapy for upper tract disease is still to be determined. Uh, there are trials going, uh, the ECOG just completed a trial uh, looking at um, dose-dense MVAC neoadjuvantly for upper tract disease, and they're proposing a, um, a checkpoint inhibitor uh, in this same patient population as well. So bladder cancer is one of the um, sort of most uh, intensive uh, outpatient tumors that we treat in our practice because there's so much counseling that's necessary, there's so much intensity of treatment because these patients come in so much. And so the survivorship issues are real. Uh, after radical cystectomy with such major alterations in body function and body image, uh, the APPs are involved with ostomy care, neobladder training, um, and uh, self-catheterization. Uh, they all are on a fairly regimented uh, surveillance schedule with labs and scans. Uh, for the superficial patients, those patients um, will need follow-up of their intravesical therapy and make sure that their cystoscopies are scheduled appropriately. Now we're going to switch gears to kidney cancer. Okay, so as far as the uh, epidemiology of uh, renal cell carcinoma, about 2 to 3% of all cancer deaths, median age of diagnosis at 65, death at 70. Uh, the rates are still increasing. Um, Five-year survival has, uh, they're stratified by stage, as you can see. Certainly patients with stage 4 disease are going to do dismally, whereas uh, stage 1 disease, they actually do quite well. Uh, some of the risk factors that have ad been identified, uh, smoking and obesity, uh, certainly uh, patients with von Hippel-Lindau disease have a hereditary uh, predisposition toward developing renal cell carcinoma. And right now, uh, again, renal cell carcinoma, I mentioned it's chemo-resistance. It's also considered very radio-resistant, and as a result, surgical resection is the only effective therapy for localized or locally advanced renal cell carcinoma. As far as the tumor histologies that are out there, the most common type, which is also one of the most virulent, clear cell renal cell carcinoma, about 85%. Papillary renal cell carcinoma, just about 10%. There is type 1 papillary, which is less aggressive. Type 2, which is, which is considered more aggressive. And unfortunately, many of the targeted agents at this point 
only are focusing on the clear cell variant and not and less the non-clear cell variants such as papillary and chromophobe, although chromophobe is considered a little bit more indolent. There are less common uh, histologies uh, that are out there, but these are extremely virulent, uh, such as medullary and collecting duct carcinoma. Certainly you can have upper tracheoethelial carcinoma and some benign tumors, such as oncocytoma and angiomyolipoma. This is what they look like under the microscope. Uh, on the left, uh, you have clear cell renal cell carcinoma, which is the clear cytoplasm, has a very distinct appearance uh, under H&E staining. Papillary looks like uh, fingers. You have type 1, which is more basophilic, and type 2, which is the more aggressive variant, uh, in the middle being more eosinophilic. And uh, one of the reasons why we don't commonly do biopsies of renal cell carcinoma is shown in the last two panels on the right, differentiating between a chromophobe renal cell carcinoma and an oncocytoma can be very difficult on needle biopsies because they do resemble each other. Uh, and some of the immunohistochemical stains, which can identify these tumors, cannot be done with such a small amount of tissue on uh, needle biopsies. And this is one of the drawbacks and the reasons why we don't do biopsies uh, for renal masses. As far as the workup goes for a small renal mass, it's usually uh, discovered incidentally. Uh, you want to get cross-sectional imaging, such as a CT or an MR, uh, depending on what the patient's renal function is. Um, if you're concerned about your ethelial carcinoma, we will get a urine cytology on these patients and sometimes uh, even recommend ureteroscopic evaluation. As far as clinical staging goes, uh, it has to do with the size of the tumor as opposed to the depth of invasion, like what we see with urethelial carcinoma. Less than seven centimeters and localized to the uh, kidney is going to be T1. Seven to 10, but still localized to the kidney is going to be T2. T3 means you have uh, local invasion or local advancement of the tumor, no matter what the size is, and T4 is going to con uh, involve contiguous structures. And it should be noted that almost a third of renal cell carcinomas at presentation will be metastatic. And as I mentioned, unfortunately, renal cell carcinoma is very minimally responsive uh, to chemotherapy. There are several clinical trials out there looking, over several th looking at several thousand patients with the overall response rate being uh, just uh, about 6%. However, uh, there has been evidence of uh, an immunological role in combating uh, renal cell carcinoma. Actually, spontaneous remissions have been documented. So you have a patient with metastatic disease who undergoes a cystectomy and they have regression of disease, and that is called the abscopal effect, where you have regression of metastases after treatment of the primary tumor. Abscopal, by definition, is either surgical or radiation to the primary tumor. Additionally, you have an increased risk of these tumors in immunodeficient states, which points to a possible immune involvement in the development of renal cell carcinoma, and these tumors have been shown uh, to be infiltrated with tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes, or TILs, uh, when they've been taken out, again, pointing to a potential uh, immunologic role uh, in uh, the actual tumor development and possible treatment. Some of the agents that have, were historically looked at for treatment of metastatic renal cell carcinoma 
include interferon and interleukin-2 or IL-2 and combinations using these actual medications. This was uh, one of the first studies looking at high-dose IL-2, which was initially approved for metastatic renal cell carcinoma back in 1992. And the amazing thing about this was that a durable CR rate was seen in almost 8% of the patients when compared uh, to uh, IL-2 combined with uh, interferon, and that's a low-dose IL-2. Uh, and this was uh, the PROCLAIM study, uh, which was done back in the uh, 80s and reported in the 90s. However, high-dose high IL-2 is a particularly toxic uh, uh, actual uh, regimen uh, where these patients had to be monitored in the intensive care setting because of something called uh, capillary leak syndrome, where these patients would develop retention, interstitial edema, hypotension, intrarenal vasoconstriction, and acute kidney injury these patients would get sick, right? So uh, they had to be, this had to be administered as an inpatient, uh, to inpatients alone, could not be administered to outpatients, and these patients need very, needed very significant uh, monitoring uh, to make sure that uh, uh, they would uh, do well through the actual administration. So the recommendations for the administration of high-dose IL-2, and there are some centers who are still administering high-dose IL-2 is that they have a monitored bed, they have a central line, you resuscitate them with colloid as opposed to crystalloid because otherwise you're gonna, the crystalloid will leak out into their interstitium as well as into their pulmonary vasculature. They would shake and bake, so they would get these really high temperatures, 104, 105, so you would have a cooling blanket always at their bedside. You use diuretics very judiciously, and when they developed uh, pulmonary uh, edema, uh, you would, uh, or certainly a pulmonary um, effusion, you would consider a, a thoracentesis on these patients. As a result, many investigators have tried a lower dose of IL-2 as opposed to high-dose IL-2 because they thought it would be better tolerated, but unfortunately the response rates uh, were significantly worse. Interferon alpha is considered uh, a uh, a less or a more humane to treat a metastatic renal cell carcinoma, at least historically. However, the response rate was significantly less, and you did not see any of the CRs that you saw with the high-dose IL-2. The largest study to look at this uh, was back in 2002 and reported uh, in JCO. And one thing to recognize by these overall survival curves is that the patients with a better performance status which is the blue curve up top here as opposed to the poor performance status, uh, they were actually the ones uh, who did better. I, in addition, the role of VHL, which is the von Hippel-Lindau gene in renal cell carcinoma has more recently been elucidated and this has led to the discovery of other medications which are used to treat renal cell carcinoma which have activity. Inactivation of the VHL uh, tumor suppressor gene leads to a, an accumulation of something called HIF, which is the hypoxia-inducible factor, which is a transcription factor, and as a result, this leads to overexpression of a number of genes, including VEGF, that are normally re regulated by HIF, which will be abnormally high and lead to the development of specifically clear cell renal cell carcinoma. And again, this is why these medications that I'm going to mention are only really effective against clear cell renal cell carcinoma, and these are the targeted agents uh, which came out really in the uh, earlier 2000s going into 2010, 2011. 
As far as VEGF goes, patients who have a significant accumulation of VEGF within their tumor had a poor overall survival. And this led to, as I mentioned, the development of all of these medications, uh, which would uh, be involved in blocking the, the uh, VEGF and the VHL uh, cascade. These are targeted agents, uh, and these are the uh, genes that would be overaccumulated in patients uh, who had the VHL or an, a, uh, a VHL gene not working well, and as a result, this would lead to, uh, again, clear cell renal cell carcinoma. These are the targeted agents. They are all monoclonal antibodies, uh, and they all showed efficacy against, again, clear cell renal cell carcinoma in patients with a mutated uh, VHL gene. These are the trials, again, large phase three trials uh, that led to first line, uh, to the approval of these medications for first line treatment of metastatic renal cell carcinoma, medications such as sunitinib, bevacizumab, pazopinib, as well as uh, timserolimus, which was an mTOR inhibitor, uh, which is used for patients with poor risk disease. The study looking at uh, sunitinib, again, they were comparing it to interferon because at the time, that's all that we had that was effective against this type of cancer, showed a significant overall uh, survival benefit. Then going to serafinib, another one of the targeted agents, again, this time being compared to placebo, the uh, overall survival, the progression-free survival in this situation, again, to see uh, significantly better. Uh, the COMPARES trial actually compared two of these agents, which were pazopinib versus sunitinib. This was a non-inferiority study. Patients who presented with advanced renal cell or metastatic renal cell carcinoma, again, with clear cell histology because these are the tumors that these medications were most active against. They were randomized to receive either of these, uh, uh, either of these medications with the uh, primary endpoint being progressive-free uh, survival. And you can see that the curves uh, mimic each other very, very closely for progression-free as well as over our survival, which showed that pazopinib was non-inferior to sunitinib and as a result uh, was approved. Uh, however, the pazopinib you can see in this plot here uh, was much better tolerated than the sunitinib with uh, the majority of AEs seen in the sunitinib group and not as much in the pazopinib group. Uh, so the AE profile uh, really favors pazopinib and led to the approval of pazopinib, certainly for first line for metastatic disease. Looking at cabozatinib uh, versus sunitinib for patients with poor risk disease, this was a phase two trial. Again, patients who had uh, either poor or intermediate risk uh, renal cell carcinoma treated with cabozatinib versus sunitinib. Um, and this is the mechanism of uh, cabozatinib. It, uh, and these are the reasons why uh, uh, it was more effective in patients with uh, poor risk renal cell carcinoma because it actually targeted the upregulation of genes involved with the development of uh, more aggressive renal cell carcinoma. As far as the treatment-related adverse effects uh, with these medications, they can be quite severe. Uh, this is the hand-foot uh, syndrome. These patients would come in. Uh, they would look like this. It looks extremely painful. They wouldn't walk. They wouldn't be able to hold things. And these were uh, some of the grade three and four reactions that we saw in these patients, which would lead to discontinuation uh, of these medications. So as far as the effectiveness of the VEGF inhibitors, the tyrosine kinase inhibitors as monotherapy, unfortunately, they were not considered curative. They did not see the 
uh, durable response or the complete response that we saw uh, uh, with the um, uh, with high-dose IL-2, so they really didn't hit uh, that level. Uh, they were thought to be maybe used in combination, and there were ongoing clinical trials uh, to uh, address the potential of combinations uh, in trying to uh, achieve a better uh, actual uh, response. However, then came the neoimmunotherapies. So we went full cycle with treatment of metastatic renal cell carcinoma, starting with an immunotherapy such as high-dose IL-2 and interferon, then you went into with, with the elucidation of the involvement of VHL gene in renal cell carcinoma. You went to a targeted therapy, and now we're going back to the immunotherapies. Uh, there are some uh, in development, such as with antibodies to CTLA-4, such as ipilimumab, and antibodies to both PD-1 uh, seen with nivolumab. Uh, the elucidation of nivolumab in advanced renal cell carcinoma was uh, first uh, demonstrated in New England Journal of Medicine back in 2015. It was uh, uh, compared to Everolimus in 820 patients who had uh, been treated with prior targeted therapy. It, they were randomized one-to-one, -one, and you actually uh, de demonstrated a uh, significant uh, survival benefit uh, with nivolumab compared to one of the targeted agents, again, Everolimus, in this uh, patient population. As far as the uh, toxicity goes, it was also uh, much better tolerated uh, in the nivolumab, so in the uh, immunotherapy group versus the targeted therapy group. Hot off the presses, going to April of 2018, a combination therapy of nivolumab plus ipilimumab, again, two immunotherapy agents combined together, working in synergy with each other, looking at that in patients with advanced renal cell carcinoma. The trial was called Checkmate 214. It looked at almost 1,100 patients, randomized one-to-one -one, uh, between ipi and, uh, and nivolumab versus sinitinib for patients with untreated uh, clear cell renal cell carcinoma, so in the first-line uh, space with a medium follow-up of, of, of a, a little bit over two years, and you saw a survival benefit of the Nebo and Ipi versus Sunitinib, uh, both overall survival and progression-free survival. Unfortunately, adjuvant therapy in renal cell carcinoma has not had uh, the success that we've seen uh, with adjuvant therapy potentially in urothelial carcinoma. Some of the agents that have been looking at were anti-VEGF agents, such as sunitinib and serafinib in the ASSURE trial, and the SOURCE trial, the PROTECT trial, the EVEREST trial, and all of these, unfortunately, uh, were negative trials. Uh, however, uh, and this was the ASSURE trial, um, which showed no difference in disease-free survival or overall survival. You can see that the, uh, that the survival curves very much mirrored each other in the adjuvant setting. The S-TRAC trial uh, did show a slight benefit in patients with high-risk renal cell carcinoma treated in the adjuvant setting uh, with sunitinib. Uh, unfortunately, the benefit that was seen was extremely modest, and the toxicity was very, very high. And as a result, a lot of us do not know if this really changed our practice uh, in, in, in treating patients in an adjuvant uh, setting for advanced renal cell carcinoma. Really, the, the discontinuation rate for the medication was almost a third due to toxicity, which versus uh, less than uh, approximately 5% in the placebo arm. 
Also, those adverse events that were seen in the targeted therapy group and the sunitinib group were significantly higher than what we saw in the placebo group. And the, as a result, the quality of life was much, much less in that group. And when you compare that to the very modest benefit that you were seeing in survival, a lot of us are not necessarily using uh, these medications in the adjuvant setting. So that is still a space that's very, very uh, open for uh, research. As a result, the adjuvant therapy for renal cell carcinoma, standard of care really remains observation and surveillance. And there are, under, there are ongoing immunotherapy trials, so because the, the, the ability to tolerate these medications is much better than what was seen with the targeted medications, and these are currently open in accruing patients, such as uh, looking at uh, agents such as atezolizumab, which opened in January 2017, and nivolumab, uh, which uh, was just activated uh, a month after that. A word on cytoreductive nephrectomy. Cytoreductive nephrectomy re means removing the primary tumor before you go on to systemic therapy in patients with metastatic disease. And again, because of the uh, immuno immunogenicity of these tumors, it is thought to be uh, very beneficial. You can certainly see an abscopal effect, but additionally to that, you're getting rid of the bulk of the tumor, so you're allowing the systemic agents to treat the metastatic disease uh, so you don't have that tumor sink that is available, and uh, it's shown survival benefit uh, in patients uh, with metastatic disease. So this was a, a combination, uh, a paper that looked at two combination studies, an ER, EORTC study as well as a SWOG study. Patients who received a cytoreductive nephrectomy and were treated with interferon afterward, and you actually saw a survival benefit in those patients treated uh, with a cytoreductive nephrectomy. Again, you're getting rid of the primary tumor, essentially debulking it. Then you go on to systemic therapy, and you are seeing a survival benefit in patients uh, who had cytoreduction as opposed to those uh, who did not. However, when you looked at this uh, a little bit more closely, only those patients with a good performance status were thought to really benefit from uh, the cytoreduction. So as a result, the recommendations for patients to receive cytoreduction are those, those who are younger and healthier, in other words, have a better performance status, have a lower burden of metastases, uh, and because the higher burden of metastases, you may want to go on to treat these patients up front uh, with systemic medication and then consider to consolidate them with surgery afterward. Uh, and those patients who uh, re would receive symptomatic benefits. So those who came in with a symptomatic tumor, uh, such as with hematuria or pain, and you thought that by palliating them, you would get them uh, on quicker to uh, some type of systemic treatment. The role of the APN and PA in renal cell carcinoma, not as well defined as what we saw with prostate and bladder cancer. This tumor is not as uh, involved um, from a uh, uh, mechanistic standpoint as what we saw uh, with certainly with bladder cancer. So we ask uh, our, AP, our APP in these situations really to follow NCC and guidelines as, follows, as far as follow-up goes, help order the scans, help order the laboratories, follow these patients' renal function, uh, and uh, uh, try to assist us when something is actually uh, failing. And these are the 2018 NCC guidelines for renal cell carcinoma, and this is what we ask uh, Anne to follow uh, when she sees these patients for stage one disease. You can see here 
They're getting uh, intermittent uh, imaging, both cross-sectional, sometimes ultrasound imaging, chest x-ray annually for three years, and after five years, uh, follow-up is not really indicated. For patients with more advanced disease, stage two or stage three, she's, we're seeing these patients every three to six months, getting cross-sectional imaging every three to six months, chest imaging every three to six months, usually with a chest CT, and then after five years, assuming they have not recurred, uh, then uh, we uh, don't necessarily follow them beyond that point. And finally, moving on to uh, testicular cancer. All right, coming down the home stretch here, last but not least. So testicular cancer um, is a little bit different in our practice than the other tumors we've talked about. Um, there's some very famous uh, uh, celebrities that have had testicular cancer. Uh, John Cruck was treated at our institution way back when, um, Philadelphia Philly. These patients are younger, so not only are we thinking about the next five years, we're potentially thinking about the next 50 years. Um, and so uh, our outlook is a little bit different. When we talk about staging, uh, and we uh, discuss this with our residents, all the time, it's actually fairly confusing. It's not as straightforward as you'd like. Um, the uh, primary site of metastasis are the retroperitoneal lymph nodes, and that's due to the embryology. So the testis uh, in utero starts up near the kidney, and then throughout um, development, the testes will drop, and eventually at birth, in 97% of boys, will be in the scrotum but it carries with it the uh, lymph and blood channels from the retroperitoneum up near the kidneys. And so that's the first landing spot where testis typically likes to go. And so we use uh, both um, imaging and serum tumor markers to help stage uh, testis patients. Uh, kind of like we have PSA for prostate, for uh, testicular cancer we have three uh, specific tumor markers that are very uh, helpful in management and, and detecting recurrence. These are uh, AFP, or alpha-fetoprotein, beta-HCG, uh, which is actually a pregnancy test, um, or LDH. And so that's part of the follow-up and the staging as well. Uh, testis cancer is sort of the standard bearer. It's the champion for cure for solid tumors. Uh, back in the 50s, uh, it was a death sentence. Uh, but now with uh, very effective chemo, integrating surgery and radiation, we actually are curing a lot of these men. About uh, half of the patients with mixed germ cell tumors will have metastatic disease. Uh, patients that have a pure seminoma are less likely to have metastatic disease in the 20 to 30 percent range. Uh, when we talk about germ cell tumors, there's basically five flavors or five subtypes. Seminoma is the most common, and then everything else. And so if you have anything else, you're considered a non-seminoma or a mixed germ cell tumor. That includes embryonal, yolk sac, uh, teratoma, um, and choriocarcinoma. Indiana gets credit, uh, Dr. Einhorn, for the chemotherapeutic breakthrough. Uh, this is, again, combination chemotherapy. At that time was platinum, vinblastin, and bleomycin. Uh, and they showed for the first time durable, real cures. Uh, now that we actually are curing a lot of patients, now we're actually trying to risk stratify and back off, uh, determine who needs as intense a therapy, because again, now we're moving beyond the next one or two years and the next 
50 years. So one of the, the important uh, classifications is the International Germ Cell Consensus Classification. And this divides metastatic uh, testicular cancer patients into good, intermediate, and poor risk groups. And this directly correlates with the intensity of treatment that they get. Uh, in general, the good prognosis metastatic patients are the ones whose serum tumor markers are only modestly high or not elevated and have metastatic disease in the retroperitoneum and the chest only. If the tumor markers go up very high or if they have non-pulmonary visceral metastasis, so that would be things like liver or bone or brain, that puts you in the poor risk category. So when we talk about um, good, intermediate, and poor risk, there is no poor risk seminoma. So that's another little distinction. Seminomas always do the best, and the worst you can have for seminoma would be intermediate risk. And so S3 is the highest level of the tumor markers. S2 is sort of in the middle. S1 is just modestly elevated. And this directly impacts which chemo regimen that we offer. For the good risk patients, those patients have two options, either two drugs over four cycles, etoposide cisplatin, or three drugs for three cycles, pleomycin, etoposide, cisplatin. Uh, if they have uh, unexpected disease when we do a, a lymph node dissection after surgery, those patients would get two cycles of three drugs, pleomycin, etoposide, cisplatin. When we move up into either higher tumor markers um, or non-pulmonary visceral metastasis, and that's the intermediate and poor risk, those patients get four cycles of three drugs, uh, so four cycles of bleomycin, etoposide, cisplatin. There are salvage regimens uh, available, uh, typically using um, uh, the iphosphamide uh, family, uh, VIP or TIP, uh, uh, in combination. So in patients that get uh, BEP, bleomycin etoposide cisplatin, and do not have a complete response or then or develop a late recurrent metastasis, about a quarter of those will be salvaged with one of the cisplatin iphosphamide salvage regimens. Uh, this also is a potential role for bone marrow transplants. So you give high dose uh, chemotherapy basically wipe out their marrow and then salvage them or save them with a stem cell transplant. Uh, patients who don't have a complete response or have a recurrence after initial chemotherapy should be considered for a stem cell uh, transplant. Uh, and other agents such as paclitaxel and gemcitabine are also looking somewhat promising in the second line as well. So when we look at uh, treatment options for the worst patients, the stage three or the relapsed testicular cancer. There's been a, a bunch of different agents. Uh, again, if we look at uh, BEP, over a 90% cure rate. Uh, intermediate in the 70 to 80% cure rate. When we get into the poor risk, only about half those patients are cured. So there is unfortunately still a, a number of patients that will die of testicular cancer, but the number of patients that are in the high-risk category fortunately are very low. So the majority of patients will either be localized, non-metastatic, or in the good or intermediate risk, and those patients can expect a very high chance of cure. 
As I mentioned, anatomically, the lymph nodes in the retroperitoneum uh, near the kidneys, the vena cava, and the aorta are the most common first spot of metastasis. And so we'll see that on imaging, and that's part of the staging. If they have radiographic evidence of nodal involvement, those patients will get chemotherapy. They're stage two, usually good risk. And what to do with those lymph nodes after the chemo is not always so straightforward. Uh, there's been multiple studies looking at surgical resection, especially in the non-seminoma patients. And most of those are still cured. You know, about 40%, even though it looks like a, a residual mass, will only be fibrosis and necrosis. 40% of them will have the tumor subtype of teratoma. Teratoma is the one subtype that is uniformly resistant to chemotherapy and or radiation. And so if there is teratoma there, the treatment for cure would be to remove. A small subset, even rarer, would actually have viable germ cell tumor such as uh, embryonal carcinoma or yolk sac. Uh, we don't typically radiate these masses after chemotherapy. Uh, it's been done in the past, um, but typically surgery and chemo are the mainstay. Now, again, the big break is seminoma or the mixed non-seminomous germ cell tumors. The seminoma patients that have a residual mass after chemo, technically, uh, surgically, those are very challenging to remove. There's a much more intense inflammatory reaction of these uh, tumor masses, and so the risk of life-threatening vascular injuries is much higher. Those patients we will resect, but typically we'll only resect them if their PET scan is positive. So if they have a mass but their PET scan does not light up, then we're assured that they're much more likely to just be residual fibrosis and necrosis and we'll follow those patients. That's one distinction between seminoma and the mixed germ cell tumors. Teratoma is the thing that we really worry about, and it really uh, does not respond well to anything but the knife. It really needs to be removed. Uh, and so uh, one of my mentors, Dr. Scheinfeld at Sloan Kettering, uh, gave me this slide, and he's given this slide before, five reasons why you should resect teratoma. And one is that we can't tell on imaging what subtype it is. You don't know till you get it out. Um, the other uh, important thing is that um, these uh, teratomas, even though when you look at them cytologically, may not look very malignant, they can grow very quickly, and so you can get an expansion of either cystic or solid masses, what we call growing teratoma syndrome, will not be impacted by chemo. You need to surgically remove them. Another important distinction is that the teratomatous tissue, and so a teratoma is typically a tumor of all three uh, germ lines. And so you can have uh, uh, mesenchymal tumors, uh, epithelial tumors. Uh, you can have bone, cartilage, thyroid, um, um, colon uh, glands. Um, those specific subtypes can actually then de-differentiate and get turned into the malignant subtype of that tumor type. Uh, and so these are reasons why when you have teratoma, your antenna should be up uh, to have a little bit uh, quicker threshold to operate on these patients. The side effects uh, are, are not insignificant, especially in a very young, healthy patient population. 
Uh, cisplatin, as we know, can cause um, mucositis and uh, nausea and vomiting. It also predisposes to Raynaud's phenomenon. So these patients, unfortunately, are at higher risk long-term of metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular side effects. Um, etoposide was uh, used to replace vinblastin, and so the CMV um, regimen that was first uh, described, uh, the V became etoposide. Vinblastin had a lot of neurotoxicity. Bleomycin has significant pulmonary toxicity. Um, and actually, as an aside, Lance Armstrong, when he was going through his battle, specifically avoided bleomycin because he didn't want to take on the risk of long-standing pulmonary toxicity. He was so determined to ride. Um, the growth factor support can really help the myelosuppression uh, that we see as well. So if you imagine the average age of testicular cancer is between 20 and 40, and this is the prime uh, period of fertility, of, of childbearing for men. So infertility is another important side effect. This is related to everything we do to these guys, both the surgery, uh, the radiation, uh, and the chemo. Uh, so surgery, if we go into the retroperitoneum to remove these uh, residual lymph node masses, or if we do a prophylactic uh, primary node dissection to see if the lymph nodes are involved, we can cause retrograde ejaculation. Not going to affect the ability to perform, to get an erection, but actually the nerves that are important for normal integrate ejaculation. So the take home for, for uh, my med students and all of the APPs is any young guy, you got to find out if they've had kids or if they want kids, because before we do anything to them, they should really uh, do sperm banking. Um, the chemotherapies that we talk about can also wipe out the uh, spermatogenesis and cause infertility that way as well. The secondary malignancies is also a real issue, and this is why for the appropriate patients, we try to give less drugs and less cycles. Uh, leukemias or blood-based uh, chemotherapies, uh, the radiation that the, we sometimes will give to the retroperitoneum can increase the risk of gastric tumors or sarcomas because they're in the line of fire. Um, there's also some concern that sarcoidosis is increased in germ cell tumors from our treatments. So in conclusion, uh, testicular cancer, by integrating surgery, chemotherapy, and radiotherapy, uh, the multidysmoria approach, is the standard bearer for uh, cure for solid tumors. And all of the advances of the different regimens together have led to cure. Um, when we uh, have these young patients, we need to also keep our eye on the prize that we're not worried uh, only about two years, but 50 years down the road. And with that, I think we're done with our presentation. I think we have, we're one minute over. And I'm getting the times up. If we have any questions, we'll take one question. Or you can come find us after when we take questions then too. Thanks a lot.